Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Sobral. In this episode, we're going to discuss one of the most controversial and important topics for all sport organizations. How can sport ensure transgender athletes can be fully included? And we're going to view this from a legal perspective. To do so, we have a very special guest. She has a long list of publications dealing with gender issues generally and sport more specifically, including transgender athlete participation. She's Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Western New England University. It's Erin E. Pesuvis. Welcome, Erin. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for letting me put the E in because I think that's cool. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> Erin recently published Law, Policy, and the Participation of Transgender Athletes in the United States. Erin, I almost feel as though gender inclusion issues is something that sport has never wanted to deal with. Let's go back to early formalized sport. It was all about men. Uh, What what are women? What's that about? I just want to ask you, how does this research help us understand how sport has approached transgender athlete inclusion? You're certainly right that uh, that this is an issue that has long evaded uh, sort of meaningful uh, uh, engagement by sport uh, organizations. I mean, going back to the ancient Greek Olympics, the way they handled questions of gender was to say that uh, women couldn't, not not only couldn't participate, but couldn't even attend as spectators. Uh, So there's, you know, evidence from Greek mythology uh, anyway, that uh, in cases where female spectators were caught, Um, that they either had to have really high profile uh, connections to get them out of trouble uh, or else they face the death penalty. So fortunately, sport has become more inclusive of women's participation, but the structure that sport has employed uh, for reasons that are both understandable as well as challenging uh, is to have separate opportunities for, for men and women. When you organize sport according to a binary structure like that, um, it creates challenges for human beings for whom the binary does not easily define them. So we could be talking about athletes who are transgender, by which we mean somebody whose sex that they were assigned at birth doesn't correspond to the gender that they experience themselves to be, their gender identity. Um, And it also presents challenges for athletes whose um, sex characteristics are not necessarily all lining up under one column. Uh, So somebody with what we might call an intersex uh, condition or what some people prefer the label difference of sexual development. And so we've seen sport organizations struggle with how to define the limits of participation, eligibility for participation in women's sports when both of those categories of athletes are um, are involved. And you start your your research article with, I think, a a brilliant and very simple question. Should sport organizations in the United States permit transgender athletes to participate according to the gender with which they identify, even if it differs from the sex they were assigned to at birth? Why did you think, and I know you've kind of answered that already, but why did you think it was important to ask this question from a research perspective? Yeah, well, there's just been, there's a lot uh, going on in the United States in the, in the legal realm, which is where I hang my hat. Um, and I know it's not the, on, the only country with legal developments. Um, I can definitely give a shout out to Australia and this uh, legislation and a few examples of case law that I'm aware of that have shown that uh, you know, other countries are dealing with this too, and, and, and perhaps even, you know, even more so uh, than, than, uh, than, than we are here. But there's a lot going on in the United States. We also have a lot of conflict between different uh, approaches that are taking place in different states. Right? So the fact that we have 50 states here 
creates an opportunity for 50 different laboratories to come up with some uh, approach that applies at least to the um, scholastic sports in their jurisdiction. In conflict possibly with federal law and federal civil rights law, as well as constitutional law that sort of provides uh, a foundation of rights throughout the whole country. So it really is a lot of uh, a lot to sift through here in the United States. And so asking that question from the standpoint of a legal legal question was an opportunity to kind of clarify what's known, identify the terrain on which these battles are being fought, uh, to give people who are working in sport management an understanding of the developments and where things are going in this area. Can you just tell us a bit why looking at it from the legal perspective is actually useful for, for sport management? In, in part because you might have a legal obligation to do one thing or another when it comes to setting up your own policy. And it's also possible that the legal obligation you have from your home country might potentially put you in conflict with what your international governing body um, is telling you to do. You know, just for a recent example, and I didn't get to write about this in the paper because it happened too too late in the process, but uh, you know, when the international governing body for rugby came up with a policy that completely excludes transgender women from participation, um, I think that body is gonna face arguments that in certain countries, the, the, the sort of local implementation of that international policy is gonna run afoul of you know, state and national civil rights laws uh, and could put those countries, uh, national governing bodies and participations that would have to be potentially subject to the international rules in a bind. Um, so you have to know what the legal landscape is because it might create compliance obligations, it might create compliance challenges I don't purport to say, though, that the law is the only game in town. I think that when you're thinking about these issues of inclusion, um, that there's also ethical and and sort of moral uh, obligations as well, things that values that transcend law uh, or values that are only sort of lightly reflected in law, you know, sort of our, our, our international human rights concepts that are really deep and intrinsic and important principles, but that don't often find a very specific outlook and say outlet and say this is how it specifically applies in the context of sport. But those issues of uh, treating people fairly, treating people with dignity, uh, making sure that we're not creating sport policies that are going to cause harm, I, I think are also important, um, even if they're not necessarily part of a legal mandate, but a moral ethical one as well. And like you say, those values are, are sport related too. The sport has those yeah. values of inclusion and fairness and, and all those other ones you mentioned. They should. <laughs> they should. I mean, sometimes I wonder about certain, uh, certain you know, certain sports contexts uh, about wh- whether they are existing just for some sort of commercial purpose, uh, some sort of business reason, as opposed to um, actually trying to promote participation in the sport so that the people who are actually participating are, are, are benefiting from that experience. But I mean, sport is a really diverse concept. Um, and I think that's part of what gets reflected in my paper, the idea that you know we have sport for kids to just play. In the United States, we have uh, a lot of sport for youth that's run through the educational system, both um, post-secondary and secondary education. We have recreational sports for adults you know, and yet when people say sports, they immediately think of professional or elite international competition. And that is just such a tiny fraction of the athletic opportunities that are out there in the world. So what I really worry about is that our concerns about how inclusion should play out at those levels 
are going to trickle down and that we're going to be making decisions for the vast majority of sport based on the particular needs and considerations of a tiny minority of elite athletic opportunities. Um, and I really want to see the table on that turned and that the default, uh, if we could get into sort of where I come out on this as, an, as a position uh, that I advocate, is to maximize inclusion. And we should be looking at inclusion as the default. And if there are going to be certain exceptions, they should be exceptions made for elite sport as opposed to rules of restriction that foster the needs of elite sport that then need a, a, some sort of exception in order to let the vast majority of people play according to their gender identity without any restriction or, or, or manners of exclusion. But let's see how you got to that, to that thinking by looking at how you, um, or what you found from looking at sport organizations policies. So, so what did you find when, it, when you started sifting through those? There's a lot of diversity even within even within this country. So just looking at the state athletic associations that organize sport for schools in their state, right? So the, the maximum potential number of these policies is 50, but not every state has an association that has addressed this. Um, there's a lot of diversity within that category of sport uh, organizing bodies. Um, some of them have policies that completely restrict transgender athletes from participating according to their gender identity. And I should say, really what the concern about is transgender girls participating in girls sport um, because the perception of having a masculinized, you know, natal body, a male natal body is gonna somehow create uh, certain de definable um, athletic advantages. And so um, some states say, we're just gonna not even entertain the notion of a transgender girl competing in girls sports. Um, and we recently had a state that as a matter of legislation, the state of Idaho passed a law that, that on its face bans transgender girls from participating in girls sports, right? Not even just pretending to be inclusive by saying, oh, you can participate according to whatever labels on your birth certificate, all the while knowing that when it comes to people under 18, you can't really easily change the marker on your birth certificate. And so it's an effective ban. So. Um, you know, there's a minority of states that are out there really trying to, to restrict participation. And we're talking again about sort of scholastic sports, people who are, you know, below the age of 18 and, and participating in just through the context of their school, uh, school participation. Then we have states that are uh, maximizing inclusion. And they say, as long as you hold yourself out sincerely as a girl, because that's your, you know, your, your genuine gender identity and nobody, nobody refutes that. You're not some, some boy who's pretending to be a girl just because you want to get in on the girls' tennis team or whatever. Uh, as long as you're genuinely a transgender girl, you should be able to participate in girls' sports. And we're not going to micromanage where you're at in your transition. And there's, you know, the majority of state athletic associations that have any kind of policy are actually in that inclusive category. There is some sort of attempt at middle ground where some states say that you can participate according to your gender identity, but you have to have started uh, a hormone transition. And they are taking their lead from the policy that applies, that the um, National Collegiate Athletic Association applies at the post-secondary, what in the United States we call the college, uh, the college level. So there's, you know, those are sort of three broad categories. There's a little bit more diversity within those categories, but you know, I think when you start to really drill down on policy, you see that there's there's really not a lot of consensus as to what is the right thing to do, or that depending on where you live, you might be in an area of the country that's more progressive and enlightened and willing to consider transgender a valid identity. 
Um, I think a lot of these concerns about safety or competitive equity are really either confused by or are masking uh, what is people's discomfort with the idea of transgender in the first place. So some parts of the country are just more accustomed to thinking about it, um, are more uh, open and embracing of the concept in general. And I think it's probably reflected that, that that difference is also reflected in the diversity of policies that I saw. One thing that does come up, though, uh, in, when I've spoken about this in, in, a, in a classroom, is this idea of the unfair advantage that, uh, a, like you say, a, more for a trans woman is going to get some unfair advantage because they, they, they might pretend to be women uh, to get that, that advantage. Is there any truth to that? Well, I mean, there's, there's certainly no, no truth to the concern that somebody who's not transgender is likely to pretend to be transgender only to participate in girls sport. I mean, that's just not a problem that has, that, that has ha- you know, that, there's any, that, that has happened. And I, I don't think that we should be creating restrictions in our policies based on some theoretical threat um, of, you know, widespread violations of, of, of these policies. For the most part, the, the states that say, go with inclusion, go based on their gen- the, the student's gender identity, they leave it up to the school to affirm that, yeah, this student is transgender. And the school knows they've had, they've had the student, they spend a lot of time with them. They would be able to, they would be able to tell if the student goes home at night is, you know, in their real uh, boy self and only pretends to be a girl, it's time to go into sports, you know, because they're because they're putting on some kind of masquerade. Um, there's always been this concern and threat of, of men masquerading as women for the glory of women's sport. Uh, I think that's kind of ironic because women's sport is so underappreciated <laughs> compared to men. So this concern that uh, that people are going to put themselves deliberately in that category for some sort of enhanced glory is a little bit wrong, but it's just not borne out by the evidence. Um, as far as competitive advantage, you know, this idea that a transgender girl's body, even if she's genuinely identifying as transgender, the fact that she has a natal male body, right, a body that was assigned male at birth based on its physical and anatomical characteristics that are typically male, I think that one's a little more tricky to to deal with um, because there are generalized differences uh, between what I'll call in shorthand for this conversation, male and female bodies. I mean, typically male and typically female. The, 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 the effects of testosterone, especially the surge of testosterone that kicks in at puberty, um, can cause on average you know, boys and men to be taller, to have uh, more muscle mass, right, just for a couple of potentially relevant athletic characteristics. Um, and so based on that, a lot of people assume that it's automatically the case that somebody who's a transgender girl has an advantage over any cisgender girl. And you know, I think that there's plenty of evidence that that categorical approach is not, is, is not true. I mean, think of any story you've ever read about how a girl won the boys, blah, 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 or a girl played, you know, successfully on some, on some boys team. Um, So if girls can at times compete successfully against boys, cisgender girls competing against cisgender boys, you know, it's not automatically the case that just because somebody has a natal male body that they have an advantage. There's diversity within these categories. There's also diversity within the approach to being transgender. Some transition, some trans, some transition early before puberty, some transition after puberty, some don't transition at all because they're waiting for, you know, waiting to become an adult to make a decision that for many people is really complicated and challenging because it involves some unknown health risks potentially. You know, so there's just, there's a lot of diversity within these categories. There's also a lot of diversity in terms of things that create athletic advantage. 
And it's not just about your natal sex. What you might have an athletic advantage based on your parents putting you into field hockey camp at a young age, right? Uh, and that might not have anything to do with your sex. You might have an unfair advantage because you're a senior on the team playing against freshmen. And boy, are you a lot bigger than those freshmen. So there can be a lot of other contributing factors to athletic advantage. And so I think that we have to really be careful about focusing in solely on transgender as the source of advantage that we're going to be concerned about. I think when we can, we should come up with policies that take a neutral approach to advantage. If, if it's really unfair to have somebody who's exceedingly tall play volleyball from the front row where they might you know, be able to spike the ball from a much higher height, if it's unfair to have somebody who's tall in the front row, it should be unfair to have somebody un, of either sex, of any sex, <laughs> playing in the front row if they happen to exceed whatever that height threshold is. And so you could write a neutral rule that says, if you're 6'2 or higher, you have to play in the back. And that rule might impact more transgender girls than cisgender girls. That's fine, but it's still a neutral rule. So I think we should be looking to do, to do that where we can. Uh, but the last reason why I support inclusive policies at the scholastic level and not impose requirements that athletes take any sort of particular steps towards transition before being allowed to play is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm as concerned about the impact of the policies on cisgender girls as I am on transgender girls. I want there to be inclusion because I want to support and validate transgender identities. But I also get really worried about the message that it sends to cisgender girls when the adults around them are doing all this hand-wringing about, oh, it's, isn't it, wouldn't it be the worst thing in the world if, if a transgender girl with her natal male body was competing against you? Because you couldn't possibly win uh, against somebody like that. Doesn't that just continue to the, the inferiority narrative um, that we've been consistently exposing female athletes to. I think that it would be a, a much more enlightened approach to say, oh, you're worried that you might not be able to beat that girl because she's a little bigger than you? Well, why don't you go out and see? Why don't you try to chase her down? You know, it's not time to get rid of the separate category for girls' sports, but if we're a little more flexible about the boundary, uh, we might be able to expose girls to the idea that you're not inherently inferior just because you have a natal female body. I think those are some really good points, particularly from the moral perspective. But but going back to the legal perspective, how do the organization's policies uh, relate to the legal obligations that that they should have? Great, great question because it varies. It varies by state. So some states have civil rights laws that say you can't discriminate against people who are transgender. And so there it makes sense that there's a policy that says inclusion in high school sports, because that's an area where civil rights generally apply. It's a little less clear what federal civil rights law might, might do to impose this right on states where that right doesn't yet exist as a matter of state law. Uh, we've had some litigation in other contexts, uh, employment uh, discrimination in particular, a Supreme Court decision from over the summer that said uh, that employers can't discriminate against transgender employees under a statute that has a sex discrimination provision. There's a federal law called Title IX that also has a sex discrimination provision. And the argument goes, well, if sex, if sex discrimination includes transgender discrimination for purposes of employment, there's no reason why it shouldn't mean the same thing for purposes of this education civil rights statute, Title IX. Um, and so there would have to be some litigation to kind of flesh out exactly what that would mean for the context of sex segregated sport. Um, but it's possible we're on the verge of, um, of a national standard 
for civil rights in that area as well. But in the meantime, it's all about either you, the state might have a policy because they've decided to, or they might have a policy because there's state law motivating them to. Connecticut, Massachusetts, California, those are some examples of states with inclusive policies that specifically have their origin in state anti-discrimination law. So they, they couldn't they couldn't scale it back if they wanted to. Some other states have done it more as a, a voluntary matter, I guess I could say. It sort of remains to be seen uh, what's going to happen across, uh, across a range of states if either federal civil rights law or federal constitutional law gets called in uh, to um, decide uh, some, of these, uh, some, some of these challenges, because that would have implications for, for all jurisdictions. And usually I ask, what can sport organizations do? But here I think I have to ask, what do they have to do to make sure that they're in the legal uh, framework, but also you know, morally, ethically, yeah. And, yeah. and also from an international perspective, because you mentioned there that you can maybe be within your own law, but not international law. That's a really hard question to answer in, in its breadth. What do you have to do? It, it, it's a question that turns on, A, what country you're in, if it's a country like you know, US or Australia, what state are you in? Because you might have a state that provides more civil rights protection to transgender people than your, than your country does. Um, what context are you in? Because in the United States, the reason why I was talking so much about scholastic sports is because that's an area that's covered by civil rights law. A lot of private athletic clubs are outside the scope of, of civil rights laws and wouldn't necessarily be implicated by any of this debate. So what's the context and what that, what that sport's taking place? That's going to take into account, you know, whether you're, you know, youth sports or adult recreationalists or elite sports. You know, elite sports are going to be governed often by the policies that exist at the national governing body that are possibly informed or mandated by the international governing body. So you, you might have a, you know, you, who's your master depends on, depends entirely on the context in which, um, in which the sport is being played. So, I mean, maybe, maybe that's, I, it's not a helpful answer, but maybe the takeaway is that if you are running a sports program somewhere and you don't know <laughs> what, what the mandate is on you, what the minimum is, the, then what are the resources that you need to, to figure that out? Um, you could read my article. And if you're in the United States, that would help you. If you, um, you know, if you get assistance and support from your national governing body, uh, there might be resources there uh, or other resources that uh, your national governing body can link to possibly from your state or federal you know, civil rights organization or agency that finding out for sure what is required of you so that you can stay on the right side of the law. But I, I'm also willing to challenge people to push the envelope of inclusion, whether it's a reason, you know, by re for reason of a legal mandate um, or just because it's the right thing to do. To validate a transgender person's identity, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the correct thing to do. Medical, medical and psychological mainstream uh, organizations all agree that transgender identities are valid, especially when we're talking about youngsters. Any sort of policy or practice that undermines a transgender kid's affirmed gender runs the risk of creating um, psychological problems and distress. Sport isn't neutral in that sense. It's not like you can either, you can avoid either being harmful or being helpful. You're one or the other. You're either gonna harm some kid by telling them they can't play or you're gonna really help some kid by affirming their gender and, and 
putting them in a position where um, they can experience themselves as who they really are. And so if that's the choice, I want sport to be on the side of the helpful, <laughs> the, the helpful side, whether it's because of a legal mandate or, or not. For so long, sport has kind of ignored this, but now it seems like it, it could be at the forefront of helping. I think so. Let's hope so. And I'm sure your research will be great in helping that as well, Erin. Uh, thanks so much for, for talking to us about this issue. My pleasure. And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. Please head to the Sport Management Review website to check out all the latest research being published, including the article discussed in this episode, Law, Policy, and the Participation of Transgender Athletes in the United States. That's it for this episode, but take a look. There's plenty more that you can download to your favorite podcast player. Until then, it's bye for now.